You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 33, The Final Effort. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time with the Battle of Arcalay, which ended on November 17th, 1796. Arcalay was a bloody, messy affair, but it ended with a French victory, forcing Austrian commander Joseph Alvinci to halt his offensive and retreat back to Habsburg territory. In his initial report of the battle, Napoleon wrote that Arcalay had decided the fate of Italy. He may have let victory go to his head a little. True, the battle had effectively ended the third Austrian attempt to relieve Mantua, and thus represented a huge shift in momentum towards the Republicans. But there was still much to be done before French control of Italy was secured. Alvinci's offensive was over, but the other Austrian forces in the region had not yet received the memo. To the north, there was still a column of around 17,000 Austrians under Field Marshal Paul Davidovich. This was the force that had so humiliated General Vaubois at the Battle of Caliano, causing Napoleon to symbolically expel two French units from the Army of Italy. Davidovich was unaware of the confrontation underway at Arcole, and on November 17th, the day of Napoleon's triumph over Alvinci, he attacked Vaubois once again near the town of Rivoli. Once again, the French were routed. Vaubois lost nearly 2,000 troops, over a quarter of his men. Two French generals were captured. Davidovich lost only around 600 soldiers. This would have been a disaster had the events around Arcole gone differently. But with Alvinci on the run, Napoleon could now focus all of his energies on Davidovich. By the time he received news of Vaubois' defeat, Bonaparte was already on the march north with 15,000 men. He clashed with an Austrian force around Rivoli on November 22nd, but it turned out to be nothing more than a rear guard. Davidovich had learned of Arcole and was in retreat. Napoleon managed to net 1,500 prisoners in pursuit, but Davidovich was gone before the French could force a major engagement. As always, Mantua was another potential trouble spot. With the addition of Field Marshal Wurmser's army to the garrison, Napoleon now needed somewhere around 9,000 troops to man the siege lines outside the city. Arcole had forced him to borrow several hundred soldiers from this sector of the front, and so, for over a week, 
There were only around 6,000 French troops keeping watch over an Austrian garrison of over 20,000. The besiegers were stretched so thin, they actually had to abandon some of their entrenchments. Seeing the French weakness, Wurmser's subordinates begged him to attempt a breakout. If the Republicans were pulling troops out of the siege lines, that could only mean one thing. Another relief attempt was underway, and Bonaparte was hard-pressed to stop it. Surely this was the time to strike. But Wurmser was cautious for once. He didn't order an attack until November 22nd. The Austrians successfully stormed the enemy siege lines, but they learned from their new French prisoners that Alvinci's relief attempt had already been defeated, and so they had no choice but to fall back behind the walls of the city. Wurmser has been criticized for not moving sooner. If he'd made this attack before Arcalay, he could have caused Bonaparte some serious headaches. However, he had to take his own army's weakness into account. Months of disease, malnourishment, and inactivity had taken their toll. Fewer than half the troops inside Mantua were fit for duty. Wurmser was not a cautious man by nature. Clearly, he felt he had to be absolutely sure of victory before making a move. That caution is understandable, but it costs the garrison their last, best opportunity for a breakout. By late November, Mantua's stocks of meat and fresh vegetables had been totally exhausted. The garrison was getting by on little more than bread, and Wurmser's staff estimated they had less than a month before that ran out too. They had no choice but to cut rations yet again and hope for a miracle. The Army of Italy was not faring much better. Remember, much of their supplies came from conquest, and they had now been on the defensive for nearly five months. Memoirs of the campaign tell of hungry soldiers pulling stalks of grain right out of the ground and eating them raw. After Arcalay, there was even an abortive mutiny. In mid-November, Napoleon confidently predicted that he would issue his next report to Paris in ten days' time from his new headquarters inside Mantua. But old Wurmser and his men stubbornly held on, and weeks turned into months. Despite the condition of his army, Napoleon had no choice but to begin preparations to face another offensive. During the Arcalay phase of the campaign, he had forced the Austrians to retreat, but had failed to land a crippling blow. Before Arcalay, Bonaparte told the army that they had just one more effort to make, and they would be masters of all. But the failure to destroy, or even seriously damage, Alvinci's army broke that promise. Alvinci's force remained largely intact, and Vienna quickly sent reinforcements replacing many of the losses of mid-November. The imperative to relieve Mantua remained just as urgent as it had been before Arcalay. It was obvious that a fourth relief attempt was imminent. A trickle of reinforcements arrived from Paris, but the Army of Italy remained seriously outnumbered. As always, Napoleon hectored the directory for more men. Quote, it required good luck and good play to beat Alvinci. How can we hope to beat him again with the same troops, when he has been reinforced by 30,000 men, and we have only been reinforced by 3,000? He was exaggerating the disparity between the two armies for effect, but not by much. 
While the French braced themselves, Napoleon stayed busy. He reformed the Army of Italy's system of couriers and totally reorganized the artillery arm. He also purged the officer corps, firing or demoting men who had proven unsatisfactory and promoting promising young officers. The highest profile of these personnel changes was the replacement of General Vaubois with General Barthélemy Joubert. Joubert was a lot like Napoleon. They were both 27 years old and known for their political acumen as well as their skills as soldiers. In December, the Army's most experienced divisional commander, General Serrier, finally returned from his long convalescence. His malaria had been so severe that it was widely considered unlikely he would ever return to duty. But it would take more than a mosquito bite to lay the old veteran low. The Army of Italy would be under much better leadership in the coming phase of the campaign. Meanwhile, at Austrian headquarters, Alvinci knew the fourth attempt to relieve Mantua would almost certainly be the last. The garrison was already on borrowed time, holding out for one more offensive. If the Austrians were turned back again, surrender would be the city's only option. Alvinci now had about 44,000 men at his disposal, slightly fewer than the last offensive, but he still enjoyed a significant numerical advantage. However, yet again, Alvinci decided to divide his forces. This time, Alvinci would make his main advance from the north, taking 28,000 men through Trent, along the same route Davidovich had used in the previous offensive. A second column of 6,000 under General Adam Bialik would approach from the east, along the same highway to Verona used in the previous offensive. A third column of 9,000 men under General Giovanni Provera would push south, then hook northeast. Alvinci hoped these two smaller columns would pull French troops away from his main push in the north, perhaps even trick Bonaparte into concentrating his army against one of these forces, allowing the main column to slip in behind the Army of Italy. A sound plan, but how many times have we seen the Austrians divide their forces as part of some clever strategy, only to have the more mobile French troops take advantage of their isolation from one another? Alvinci was betting this time would be different, although he had no obvious reason to think so. They say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. That's not actually true, but sometimes you can see why people might say so. In any case, Alvinci launched his offensive just after New Year's Day, 1797. Provera's division, the furthest south of the Austrian columns, made first contact with the French, skirmishing with Augereau's men on January 8, 1797. The next day, Bialik encountered Messena's division, about 30 miles, or 48 kilometers to the north. It seemed the Austrians would be coming from the east once again. Napoleon sent some of his reserves to reinforce Augereau and Messena, but he did not fully commit to concentrating the army in the east. By now, he knew Alvinci as a strategist, and he suspected, correctly, that these might be diversions. He kept a division of 10,000 men under Joubert in the north, guarding the approach from Trent. This decision was vindicated on January 13th, when Joubert reported his advance units were retreating in the face of a massive enemy force. As Napoleon put it, quote, 
the enemy's plan is at last unmasked. End quote. Bonaparte ordered the entire French defensive line to shift north. Augereau would take over the whole eastern flank of the army, and Massena's division would march north to reinforce Joubert. Napoleon himself rode all night to take personal command of Joubert's division. He arrived at their headquarters at the town of Rivoli in the wee hours of January 14th, and immediately began arranging his units for battle eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. There was good defensive ground just north of Rivoli, a ridge line known as the Trombolore Heights. Napoleon assembled Joubert's 10,000 men in a line along the crest of the ridge. He would dare the Austrians to attack. Despite the terrain, it would be hard for Alvinci to resist the opportunity to engage a force of just 10,000 men. However, Alvinci's 28,000 existed more in theory than in practice. Most of the column was spread out on the march. Some units were several days away from the main body. On the morning of the 14th, the Austrians only had around 12,000 men concentrated outside Rivoli, just barely outnumbering Joubert's 10,000. Alvinci would be banking on his ability to concentrate sufficient numbers to overwhelm the French division once the battle already started. A risk, but a relatively safe one, given his intelligence. But Alvinci was not aware that Napoleon could also expect imminent reinforcements. As the two armies prepared for battle, 9,000 men under General Massena were in the midst of another of their infamous forced marches towards the battlefield. As a result, Alvinci was overconfident. He settled on an audacious plan of attack, aiming for nothing less than the complete destruction of Joubert's division by way of an elaborate double envelopment maneuver. The main body of the Austrian column would attack the French line on the Trombolore Heights, pinning them down in their position. Meanwhile, a brigade under General Franz Joseph de Lusignan would hook around the French left and attack Rivoli from the rear, and two brigades under Field Marshal Peter Kwasdanovich would attack along Napoleon's right flank. Thus, in theory, the French would be trapped on the heights as Lusignan and Kwasdanovich cut off their lines of retreat. Then they would have little choice but to risk a dangerous withdrawal as the noose closed around them, or, failing that, surrender. The plan was all based on sound military logic, but there were a lot of moving pieces. It would be difficult for Alvinci to coordinate the scattered elements of his divided column if things didn't go as expected. And indeed, the Austrians were missing that crucial piece of information about Messina's approaching division so things would not go as expected. 
Even outnumbered and occupying a strong position, it was not in Napoleon's nature to sit back on the defensive. The French began January 14, 1797, by seizing the strategic village of San Martino, not far from the foot of the Trombolore Heights. Once the surprised Austrians were cleared from the village, the French braced themselves for Alvinci's counterstroke. The Battle of Rivoli had begun. The Austrians made good progress at first, pushing the Republicans out of San Martino and back onto the heights. But there, the attack stalled. Alvinci remained unfazed. While fighting raged along the ridgeline, Lusignan and Kwasdanovich were making their way around Napoleon's flanks. From the Austrian perspective, it was almost immaterial who actually won the struggle on the Trombolore Heights, just as long as it kept the French too distracted to pay attention to their flanks. After several hours of combat, the Austrians managed to force back one of the brigades on the French left and gain a foothold on the ridge. Alvinci himself rode forward to urge his men onwards. If he could rout the French and force them to fall back into the jaws of his trap, total victory might be at hand. But then Napoleon did something Alvinci had not accounted for. He called forward a fresh brigade from Rivoli to plug the gap in his line. Massena's division had arrived, and not a moment too soon. Massena himself led the brigade forward in a counterattack to push the Austrians off the ridge and restore the French line. Riding forward on horseback, sword in hand, Massena got a little too carried away, and soon found himself far ahead of his men, all alone, right in the teeth of the Austrian attack. Habsburg officers called out to him to surrender, but he turned around and beat a hasty retreat as musket balls tore the air all around him. Amazingly, he escaped unharmed. Massena's close call would turn out to be the high tide of the Austrian push. His men beat back the charge and stabilized the line. South of the heights, the Austrian brigade under General Lusignan had the bad luck to arrive outside Rivoli just as Massena's infantry was getting into position. Lusignan stopped the advance to redeploy his troops to engage Massena, but just before the fighting could begin in earnest, French cavalry appeared out of nowhere on Lusignan's right flank. Seeing their enemies vulnerable, the horsemen charged immediately and closed the distance before the Austrians could form up. The white-jacketed Habsburg troops were engulfed by waves of horsemen. In a matter of minutes, hundreds of Lusignan's men were cut down as the Republican cavalry rode through the masses of panicked men doing deadly work with their heavy dragoon sabers. Lusignan's brigade was totally isolated. With no hope of retreat or rescue, they began throwing down their weapons and raising their hands. It was all over in only a few minutes. Nearly 4,000 Austrians were captured, including General Lusignan. Only about 300 of his troops made it back to Alvinci's lines unscathed. Nine out of every ten men who left camp with General Lusignan only a few hours earlier were now dead, wounded, or prisoners. The age of the armored knight was long past, but even in 1797, there was nothing quite as devastating on the battlefield as a determined cavalry charge against unprepared, unsupported infantry. On the other side of the battlefield, Napoleon dispatched units from Massena's division to block Kwasdanovich's flanking maneuver on the French right. These two forces were evenly matched, and the fighting was fierce. 
Bonaparte waited for a lull in the Austrian attack on his center, then pivoted the main line to join the fight against Kwasdanovich. At this moment of climax, a lucky French cannonball scored a direct hit on an ammunition wagon at the rear of Kwasdanovich's force. For a second, the action ceased as every eye on the battlefield turned towards this terrific explosion. A 24-year-old French cavalry colonel, Charles Leclerc, saw an opportunity and ordered his 500 horsemen forward in a reckless charge right at Kwasdanovich's much larger force. On paper, it looked like a suicide mission, but Leclerc had sensed that Austrian morale was flagging and that the sudden explosion in their rear had brought Kwasdanovich's men near the breaking point. If they had held their nerve, the Austrians could easily have mowed down Leclerc's men with volley fire, then held the survivors at bay with the bayonet. Instead, they turned and ran. Colonel Leclerc's boldness and sharp judgment put him on Napoleon's radar as a man of promise. Within a few months, he would be promoted to brigadier general, and by the end of the year, he would be Napoleon's brother-in-law. Kwasdanovich's retreat triggered a general collapse of the Austrian effort. All over the battlefield, the white-coated regiments sought to disengage and make their escape, with varying degrees of urgency. All afternoon and into the evening, they were harried by the victorious French cavalry, who killed, wounded, or captured hundreds more. It was only darkness that stopped the relentless pursuit. Despite Alvinci's clever, elaborate plans, January 14th had been one of the most lopsided days of the whole campaign. Austrian casualties outnumbered French casualties by more than two to one. But Alvinci did not retreat during the night. Nearly half his column had not even been engaged in the battle, so he could expect a steady stream of fresh reinforcements. He knew the French would almost certainly attack in the morning, in an attempt to capitalize on their success. If the battered survivors of the previous day's fighting could hold them off until help arrived, Alvinci might still salvage a victory out of this debacle. In the French camp, spirits were not as high as you might expect. Napoleon had Alvinci right where he wanted him, but bad news from the south demanded all his attention. When Bonaparte pulled Massena's division out of the line along the Adige River, he left Augereau's command of only around 10,000 men scrambling to cover the entire length of the riverbank. Augereau had to rapidly redeploy his meager force to cover a line of about 90 kilometers, or 55 miles which was already being probed by an Austrian column of roughly equal size under General Provera. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the circumstances, Provera managed to slip across the river unopposed on January 13th. On the evening of January 14th, after the first day of the Battle of Rivoli, Napoleon received confirmation from Augereau that Provera was over the Adige and making a beeline for Mantua. Provera had only 9,000 men, but he was now ahead of Augereau, whose division was scattered. The Austrian column included wagon loads of grain and an entire herd of live cattle, enough food to prolong the siege for weeks. If Provera coordinated a breakout with Wurmser, there might be hell to pay. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. 
You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Napoleon prepared to march south immediately. He would not see the second day of fighting at Rivoli, which was entrusted to General Joubert, along with detailed instructions. While Joubert finished the job at Rivoli, Bonaparte would take Massena's division to face Provera. Most of these men had left their positions along the Adige on the afternoon of January 13th, marched north all through the night, fought at Rivoli, and would now head south again on another forced march, after only a few hours' rest most likely into another battle. Shortly after leaving Rivoli on the 15th, Napoleon and Messena could hear the sounds of musket volleys and cannon fire fading into the distance behind them. The uncertainty over the outcome of the battle must have turned their stomachs. But they need not have worried. That night, Joubert wrote a report to Napoleon, quote, I followed your arrangements for the attack exactly and we have succeeded beyond all hopes." The French assault began early in the morning, and Alvinci's depleted, demoralized lines crumpled. Joubert unleashed his cavalry on the retreating Austrians, and once again they wreaked havoc. By nightfall on January 15th, as many as 14,000 Austrians had been killed, wounded, or captured in two days of combat around Rivoli compared to around 4,000 French casualties. The French also captured eight cannon, two enemy generals, and 11 battle flags, including the banners of the Vienna Volunteers, which were hand-stitched by the ladies of the imperial court and presented to the regiment by the Empress herself. Alvinci's column was shattered. He had lost as much as 50% of his force, and the remainder were in no condition to fight. The threat from the north was over. Meanwhile, to the south, Augereau managed to concentrate most of his division in Provera's rear. He surprised the Austrian rearguard and inflicted a serious defeat, killing or capturing more than 2,000 men. Provera was now cut off, but his remaining units were well supplied. They could still do some serious damage if they managed to link up with Firmzer. On January 16th, they arrived on the outskirts of Mantua. The besieging French division under General Serrier was in a tough spot. Serrier had over 8,000 men at his disposal, and Provera was now down to only around 6,000. But Serrier also had to keep one eye over his shoulder on Mantua, where as many as 15,000 hungry, desperate Austrians might come screaming out of the gates at any moment. Serrier couldn't abandon the siege lines and concentrate his whole division to face Provera. Fortunately for the French, Augereau was right on Provera's heels, and so he would be forced to act fast. The only viable option for him to get into Mantua before French reinforcements arrived was to cross the city's defensive lakes over the bridge at the town of La Favorita, a heavily fortified suburb of Mantua, which was garrisoned by a sizable force under Brigadier General Claude Victor, one of the best brigade commanders in the Army of Italy. Both Provera and Wurmser attacked La Favorita throughout January 16th, but the two Austrian forces couldn't communicate directly and found it difficult to coordinate their efforts. 
By nightfall on the 16th, Prevera was in dire straits. His column had suffered terrible casualties in fruitless assaults. The survivors were exhausted. Massena and Napoleon were approaching along his right flank, and elements of Augereau's division were advancing on his rear. Prevera surrendered. The remaining 5,000 soldiers of his column laid down their arms and entered French custody. The men of the Mantua garrison watching from the ramparts must have felt their hearts drop out of their chests. In three days, the Army of Italy had killed, wounded, or captured over 20,000 Habsburg soldiers, nearly half the Austrians who had entered Italy at the beginning of the offensive less than two weeks earlier. For the third time in ten months, Napoleon had effectively obliterated an entire Austrian field army. Wurmser continued to hold out in the vain hope that his intelligence was mistaken and another Austrian column might appear on the horizon. But, as the days passed, it became increasingly clear that the taunts from the French siege lines were not empty boasts. Alvinci really had been thoroughly defeated. No help was coming. On February 2nd, 1797, Field Marshal Wurmser informed the French of his intention to surrender the city. He and his staff emerged from the gates under a flag of truce, and made a long, lonely trudge to the siege lines where they met General Serrier and a small entourage of senior French officers. The Republicans were prepared to offer generous terms, perhaps the most significant of which was food. Wurmser signed the Articles of Surrender, and it was all over. The siege had lasted on and off since early July the previous year, roughly eight months. Between starvation, disease, bombardment, and breakout attempts, Nearly 20,000 Austrians and around 7,000 Frenchmen became casualties during the siege. And that's only counting the forces directly around the city. Tens of thousands more were lost in the wider struggle during the four Austrian offensives to relieve the city. As a condition of Wurmser's surrender, the regiments of the garrison were allowed to leave the city with their banners flying, as a symbolic acknowledgement of their bravery and steadfastness. They surrendered by their own volition, and so these cherished emblems of regimental pride would not be taken to Paris as trophies. After this ceremonial procession out of the gates, the flags were carefully rolled up for storage on the long march to Vienna, and thus the last Habsburg banners vanished from the Po Valley. Curbing Austrian power and carving out their own sphere of influence in northern Italy had been a goal of French foreign policy for centuries, since the very beginning of the Bourbon dynasty. But for centuries, any French gains in this area proved temporary against the seemingly inexorable march of Habsburg power. Now, with the surrender of Mantua, the Republican government had brought that centuries-old strategic goal within reach. In the space of ten months, a revolutionary army had succeeded where generations of French monarchs had failed for three centuries. And this wasn't the only place where the Republicans had pulled off such a miracle. The Low Countries had been a similar flashpoint for great power competition for centuries. Another place generations of French kings had tried and failed to bring under their influence. Now, the former Austrian Netherlands were annexed into France blue-jacketed Republican soldiers stood watch over the Dutch coast, and a firmly pro-French regime held sway in The Hague. There was also the Rhineland, 
Just like in Italy and the Low Countries, for centuries, French rulers and policymakers had harbored ambitions of pushing France's western border all the way to the Rhine. Louis XIV pursued this goal with vigor, but for hundreds of years, none of his successors had come close to realizing it. Now, less than five years since the Declaration of the Republic, the left bank of the Rhine was firmly under French control. Taken altogether, these territorial gains represented the so-called natural borders of France, a concept we introduced all the way back in episode 5.5. Generations of French strategists and statesmen sought to secure the natural borders, the Pyrenees, the Atlantic, the English Channel, the Alps, and the Rhine, ideally along with a few pro-French buffer states just beyond them. These efforts had stalled for centuries under the monarchy, now the Republic was making it happen after only a few short years in power. It can be hard for us to understand the nearly religious faith people put in their messianic vision of the revolution. It makes a lot more sense when you bear all of these strategic successes in mind. The basic reality of the war and the French conquests seemed to prove the superiority of the Republican system. These territorial acquisitions would quickly come to be seen within France as a kind of revolutionary manifest destiny. The natural borders would be an important component of the legacy of the revolution, just as much as meritocracy, constitutionalism, equality under the law, or the tricolor flag. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Shortly after the Austrian defeat at Rivoli, Alvinci was sacked. He had fought Bonaparte for just over three months. He was not asked to return to the Imperial War Council. He stayed in the military, but Alvinci was never assigned another field command. He died in 1810. As a pure strategist, he may have been Napoleon's most capable opponent of the campaign. He handed Bonaparte his first defeats, and brought the army of Italy closer to ruin than any previous foe. But once his forces actually engaged the French, Alvinci struggled as a tactician. Like so many in the Austrian leadership, he came from another era, and consistently underestimated the speed and resilience of the revolutionary troops. So, with Mantua finally captured and the Po Valley secured, what was next for the Army of Italy? Since all the way back in 1795, Bonaparte had argued Italy was the soft underbelly of the Habsburg Empire, the easiest, most direct route by which to threaten the Austrian heartland and force the emperor to the negotiating table. With the fall of Mantua, he was poised to finally prove his point. Napoleon would push into Austria itself. Events in Italy in early 1797 put the Habsburg regime in existential danger. Vienna is only about 600 kilometers, or 370 miles, from Verona. As we've seen, the Army of Italy was capable of covering that much ground in under two weeks. Of course, some of that distance is over very rough terrain, but the Austrians would be hard-pressed to put together an army to defend it. Remember, they had already scraped the bottom of the barrel to build Alvinci's army. But they were not about to let Bonaparte just walk right into Italy unopposed. The Battle of Rivoli had put Napoleon back on top of the Imperial War Council's agenda. Vienna poured every available resource into building a new field army to oppose the Army of Italy, now for the third time in a year. 
They seem to have finally learned that aging, retired generals were not the best choice to oppose an energetic, relentlessly aggressive enemy like Napoleon. Bonaparte's next adversary would be nearly four decades younger than Alvinci, younger even than Napoleon himself. Archduke Charles, brother of the Emperor and prodigy of the Habsburg armies, was coming home to lead the defense of Austria. But the showdown between Napoleon and the Archduke will have to wait until next time. Next episode, we'll bring the first Italian campaign to a close and take a look back at this momentous, formative period in Napoleon's career. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.